What is the good news? Simple question. Horatio Spofford was a successful Chicago lawyer and was ruined financially by the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. He invested heavily in property and it was damaged and destroyed. Worse than his financial loss was the death of his four-year-old son in the fire. Two years later, economic downturn further hit his pocket, but he and his wife and his four remaining daughters planned to travel to England to participate in D.L. Moody's evangelical campaigns. At the last minute, he had to change his plans because of a zoning issue with one of his remaining properties, so he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead to, ahead to England on the ship. Why crossing the Atlantic, that ship sank rapidly, and all four of Spofford's daughters drowned. His wife survived. His wife sent him a telegram, which, for those that don't know a telegram, a precursor to email, uh, sa and said this, two words, saved alone. What was the good news for Horatio Spofford? In that moment, what was the good news for Horatio? What's the good news for us? In this moment, or whatever moment you're in, what is the good news? During these four weeks of Advent, we'll be looking at that question on how Isaiah presents the good news to the people who are in exile, who are banished from their land by God as punishment for their disobedience. But they wait a promise salvation. They wait a promise return. And God gives them good news. Uh, understanding Isaiah is helpful. And it will help us under, to understand the New Testament, particularly Paul, and the, the, and the hearers of the New Testament, the hearers of the good news. Because Isaiah and his promises and his proclamation of the good news is the context in which they lived. It's the context of which they understood. It was their scripture. They waited for the fulfillment of Isaiah's good news. So we're going to take a different perspective. Because we don't necessarily, you guys haven't memorized Isaiah, you don't think about Isaiah probably much, it's going to be helpful for us as we process how Jesus implements that good news. Here's the context of which Isaiah is. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern, southern kingdom of Judah. Now, this is a little complicated. There is one people of God, Israel, and then uh, Israel splits into two kingdoms. And this words get confusing. The northern kingdom is called Israel. Why couldn't they just come up with a different name? We don't know. But northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called uh, Judah. And so they're split. They're, there's power kind of breaking, but they're going to split this moment. And so what's happening? This is in the... Uh, Isaiah lives uh, 740 to 680 B.C. Is, is his timeline of his ministry. And so Assyria is this... A conquering kingdom that has conquered why Isaiah's writing uh, has already written uh, chapter 40. They have conquered the northern kingdom and they have done some conquest in the southern kingdom. So they, they've done some uh, sieges and some waged some war in the southern kingdom, but the southern kingdom is held still. And so the northern kingdom has fallen to the Assyrians. They're thrown into exile. And God has promised the southern kingdom 
that they're going to be thrown into exile. And this is what Isaiah is preaching in this is a context, that the book for the people of uh, Isaiah, they're hearing, is a good news for people that are suffering in a world that they are being exiled in because of their disobedience. And they know that there's impending judgment upon them, that there is a conquering kingdom coming. And yet there's still good news proclaimed to them. And here's what we know, that in the fulfillment of Isaiah, we actually see the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise of good news happens three different ways. We know now with hindsight. The first one is that he promises, what the, the promise is that the southern kingdom is that Babylon is going to come in, conquer Assyria, conquer the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and put everyone into exile. He gives us the promise that they will return from exile. That's one way it's fulfilled, the good news, is that in 538, at about 100 years after Isaiah is done, that they will reach, they'll be put into exile and then they'll return again. The second way we know that Isaiah's fulfillment of good news comes is that Christ, by his life, death, resurrection, ascension, that we are no longer exiled from sin. They were now, we're no longer held captive by this world. That's the second fulfillment. And the third, the ultimate fulfillment, which we will focus mostly on in Advent, is that ultimately, God's promise of good news culminates in his second coming, when all of it will be brought back to peace, and then everyone will be brought back to God face to face. What is the good news then? What is this good news that Isaiah preaches? Isaiah 41 through 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand doubled for all her sins. God tells Isaiah to bring good news to God's people. And he says this, bring them comfort. Bring a word of encouragement. They are in exile. They are in fear of being conquered. He says, speak tenderly to them. There are people that are hurt and that are suffering and tell them this, the war is ended. Your sins are forgiven. The war is ended. Your sins are forgiven. In verses 3 through 5, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is to be a prophetic voice, and a prophetic voice is just this, a messenger of God. That's what a prophet is. He's supposed to be a messenger of God that tells the people good news. This is what he's to do. He is to prepare the way. He is to prepare the arrival of the good news, to make everyone ready to receive the good news. Right, verse 5, this is what he says. Isaiah is preparing for the arrival and the appearance of the glory of God. This is the good news. The arrival and the appearance of God's glory. And he will return all his people from exile from the Babylonian 
exile, he will return them and bring them back home. This, this same passage, I hope you, it's familiar to you, like, oh, Isaiah 40, I know this passage. You know it from the New Testament as well, right? The New Testament in Matthew 3, 3, this passage is applied to John the Baptist. Matthew 3, 3, for this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his straight paths straight. John the Baptist, his purpose is to prepare the way of the world to receive the good news. And who is the good news there to receive? Jesus, the appearance of the glory of God. In his first coming, that, that's what they, the advent, his first coming, they are to receive, be prepared and ready to receive Jesus, Jesus is the glory of God revealed. I want you to think about this. Isaiah is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He has prepared the way for the people to understand that God's going to return and he's going to bring them back out of exile to Babylon. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this as well. And he is to prepare people to greet the first advent of Jesus. Put a pin in it. Who's, who's the third fulfillment of this? Who's the third people that are going to prepare the way for the Lord's coming again? Jesus is the glory of God revealed. In John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus returns, he doesn't set people free from their captors. He doesn't set them free from Rome, or from their exile, or from their occupation. But what Jesus does is he ushers in his kingdom, which knows no boundaries. He frees people from the world order. This is how John uses this word, right? World order, this moral corruption that's set in rebellion against God. Sin, if we understand it properly, right? He sets us free from the condition and the moral order of sin, so we're no longer held captive to the world, and so we're free wherever, because the kingdom of God is everywhere. We are between the two advents of Christ, right? The, the ad, Jesus has come the first time, and we know, we wait, we plead, we call out, come Lord Jesus now for his second coming, when the, the last judgment will happen, and the full restoration will be put into place. We are the third fulfillment. We are to prepare the way for the good news. We are to prepare the way for by people giving the message of comfort and speaking tenderly to people that are suffering, that are hurting, that are grieved by this world that is full of sin. We are to tell people the good news of the glory of God that will appear that Jesus is returning and he will set aside finally this world order of sin. That people will no longer be exiled to this world of sin, but live freely in the new heavens and the new earth. You and I are to prepare the way. Get people ready for Jesus' return. What is the good news? Isaiah 49, this is it. Hear it clearly. This is Isaiah's good news. Isaiah 49. Go on, go on up 
to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That's the good news. Behold your God. God is the good news, period. The very fact that he exists and who he is, his character, that is the good news for all people, for all time. It is not what he does, although that does, because the very character is what he does. It's because the very character of who he is. God is the good news for all people. The gospel is revealing of who God is and his will for all people, which is his character. This is who I am, and this is who I'm calling you to be. God is the embodiment of love for all people. And love is not an attribute that we assign to God. Like, this is the definition of love. Oh, see, God is that. Love is a descriptor of who God is. It's a word we describe Everything God does is loving because he is love. I just want you to understand the difference. It's, we're not putting a descriptor like this is the definition of love and then we're going to like, oh, God fulfills that or not. No, God is the definition. Everything that flows out of him is love. He defines that. Everything that flows out of him is justice because that's how we begin to understand what justice is. You see, love and justice and the characteristics of God, that's the good news for us. The good news is that we get to know who this God is because God wants to be known. He wants to be known by you and I. He reveals himself. First, he does this for the very purpose of the, the first advent so he can come in the world so people can know who he is. The God with us, Emmanuel, and the second advent so we get to see him and be with him day in and day out, face to face. A God who reveals himself forever. In verses 6 through 8 in Isaiah 40, it says, We are like grass, temporary. All of this creation is temporary. But God is permanent, and therefore his word is permanent. And the messenger of God is permanent because he speaks God's word. This permanent word of good news. Behold your God. Now, implicit in this announcement, and implicit in Isaiah 40, you can hear it, is that when we hear the good news, like, yes, and for a moment, we go, I believe, I accept it, behold, I see. But the thing is, we're in this period of waiting from the first advent to the second advent, or if you're uh, a Judean, from exile to waiting to return. There's a period of waiting before salvation comes, before like, am I really experiencing God? Do I really get to know him? And so we wait, and in that waiting, doubt comes. Doubt always comes from us. It's, it's the very nature of who, of who we are is sin, is, is doubt comes. So don't, don't be ashamed of it. It's just everyone. Don't say you, don't say you never have doubts, because everyone has doubts. In our waiting, doubt is festered. And, and so Isaiah addresses the doubt. He addresses the idea, is God going to forgive me? 
does God have the power to accomplish this salvation? Does God care enough for me to do it? In the moments of our exile, living in a world full of trouble, grief, and sin, because that's what we're in. We're in a period of exile in this sin-soaked world of suffering. It's easy to get overwhelmed by our moments and circumstance and question the power and the love of God. It's easy. It's understandable. We all get there. We all ask the question, is God really present? Particularly moments of grief and pain. Why is he allowing this to happen? I don't see him working. I'm not experiencing his forgiveness nor his freedom at this moment. The rest of this chapter in Isaiah 40 actually addresses these questions. You see, God knows that you and I, the Judeans, the Israelites, are going to experience doubt. And so he addresses this. He gives us the good news, behold, your God. And the rest of the chapter expounds on the good news. God reassures his people. He comforts them. He speaks tenderly to our doubt. The first one, does God have the power? Does God have the power to free you from exile? Verses 10 through 24. Just listen to verse 10 here. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Did you hear? The Lord comes with power. He's not come passively. He comes with power and might, and he uses this symbol over and over in Isaiah. In the scripture, he says, my arm contains my power. So this arm, this symbol of strength. I mean, I, I wear long sleeve shirts to protect you from my might and power and my, my biases. Like, but in that, in this concept, right, is, is God's power and his arms, his might. By just his sheer arm alone contains all his power in which he runs and rules everything. It's the symbol over and over, his arm, his might, the, the, the armies of his arm, the symbol of his strength. In verse 12, who has measured the waters in a hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? This, God is giving me like a Job-like response, like you know, the book of Job, responding like Job to Job. Remember where Job begins to question God in his suffering. And God listens a long time to Job's uh, complaints and questions. And eventually God says, I, I don't remember you being when there when I formed all these things and created everything from out of the heavens and the earth. I, I just don't remember you there. Like, how dare you understand and question my power and might and strength and my rule? This is what God is saying. Like, you don't understand. You weren't there. I was. All things I rule over. All things I have power over. I am the creator and the sustainer of all things. We, even, we see this in the, in the New Testament where Jesus demonstrates in moments his power over creation to his disciples. And that's when the disciples, most times when they pull back, like, what just happened? 
Right. When, he, when he controls the wind and the sea and his miracles, they just say, did he just, what, did, did he just calm the wind? Did he just calm the sea? Did he just do it with his words? The power of God controlling things, ruling over things. Verses 13 to 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God's like, I don't remember anyone teaching me these things. This is who I am. I don't learn this from man. I don't learn this from a construct of man. This is who I am. God is not just as a power, but he is self-sufficient. His justice, his truth, and knowledge, he is everlasting. He doesn't need anybody. Period. Which begins to actually help you understand what a true love concept is. If you are in a relationship in which you say you love someone, and you are actually in a position where you need them, I beg to differ that you're really not into God's love. You really don't understand because that's actually called codependency. Because some, now it's not just what I actually can self-give them of myself. It's actually what I'm going to take from them. I need them. Now, if that loving person departs from you, there should be grief and pain because you love them not because you need them. There's a vast difference. So you see, God doesn't actually need any one of us. He wants and he desires. He goes to the cross for every one of us. When we turn our backs on him, it hurts him. He's sad. He's grieved by that. I think he's more grieved for us. But he doesn't need you. He is self-sufficient. You see, if God needed you, it wouldn't be love. Like, I need that their love. He doesn't need your love. He is love. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as like the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. The nations do not compare to God's power. He can easily defeat them. As he show, has shown to us where he's defeated the Assyrians, he's defeated the Babylonians, and eventually he defeated the Romans. He's defeated sin and death and the evil one. He can easily, easily defeat them. Verses 18 through 19. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? Of craftsmen cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and cast for it silver chains, idols, and all other false gods. Do not compare to the one true God, who is the good news. Verses 22-23. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and his inhabitants like the grasshoppers, who stretches out like a heavens, like a curtain. I just want, we can go back to like, maybe two months ago to our, this is just a side note. Didn't plan on this. This is a terrible idea for me to talk about this. But remember we talked about his, the created order, like the view of creation? Right? He sits above the circle of the earth. I, 
side note, like this, how people understood how the, the universe was created, that this, the earth was a circle and there's a sphere over it and the waters hovered above it. Like God is using descriptors to help them understand in their context of where he is, right? I don't think it's an actual description of where he is. He sits above the circle of the earth and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. The kings and rulers of this world from beginning to end do not compare to God's rule and power. Does God have the power? Isaiah answers this. God has all the power. God is sovereign over creation. He is self-sufficient. The nations do not compare. The false gods and idols of this world do not compare. Kings and rulers do not compare. Does God have the power? He has all the power. And the second question of doubt, does God care? Does this powerful God not actually care to set me free from this exile? Verses 25 to 31. The answer is yes. Yes, God cares. He is our tender shepherd. This, this almighty, powerful God, which he just explained in verse 11, says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, that strength, and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead them, those that are, in, are with young. This mighty and powerful God is a gentle shepherd. Do you see the extremes in which God is, is demonstrating himself as the good news? Is I am all powerful, and yet I am tender, tender and gentle with my people. I am watching over them. This is, this is how Jesus uses this parable of the lost sheep, right, right? Where the shepherd loses the one out of the hundred, right? And so he leaves the 99 and goes after the one because every sheep is important to him. Because he cares for every one. In verse 26, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings these out by uh, your host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now, what he's saying is, who has created all the stars in the heavens? Look up. Who has created them? Who knows them all by name? It is God. God is the one. God gives this comparison. And look, not one of these stars has God misplaced. He's counted them all, and he knows every one of them intimately. And more so, this comparison, the stars, like, more so, I know you. You think that's impressive that I know the stars, but you are more important, my people, than all the stars which I never lose count of. I will never lose count of my people. I will never misplace my people. He cares more deeply to us. This is similar to when, John, uh, when Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, when he says the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, and God feeds them and he clothes them. Surely, <coughs> surely he's going to close and care for you because you are that much more important. God is the creator of all things, but people, his people, are the most precious to him. You are so... He doesn't forget any of those things, and nearly will he forget you. God cares for even more. Of course, Jesus actually applies that, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. I actually care. I love you deeply. Does God care? Yes. 
Yes. It very starts off with this comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Give them the good news. God cares because he's our shepherd and he knows every one of us intimately. God cares because he's attentive to all of his creation. He's not, act, he's not a passive God. He is active in every moment, in every situation, in every aspect of creation. And we, you and I, are the most important to him because we are created in his image. We are given, into, we are given his character. The good news is God. That this God has all the power. That this God has the power and the will to save us. To return us from the exile, from our sin, into his freedom. And that this God loves and cares for us. That this is how much he's going to do us. That he is tender and kind, providing comfort for all of us. He forgives our sins and he will free us from our exile. He will free us from our sin and bring us back home to him. All that hear the good news in Isaiah's time and all that hear the good news in our time, we have one thing in common. We have to wait. For the Judeans, they had to wait for the Babylonian, uh, in the Babylonian exile. And I think God gives us that as a true thing that happened, but as a metaphor to point to a bigger reality. That all of us are waiting in the exile of our sin. Jesus has accomplished that at the cross. He's ushering in his kingdom right now, but it's being ushered in. You and I are to join in that ushering. That his second coming, we are preparing people for the second coming, when it will be fully complete, the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be no more waiting. We will be present. You and I need to wait. This is what the season of the Advent is. Waiting. Waiting between the accomplishment of the freedom of the cross and the culmination of his return. But don't, don't confuse the good news as the gift of salvation. The good news is clear. God. I mean, the good news is part of it because it's who God is. It's his will and his character because he has the power and he actually cares. He loves you. But the good news is God who he is. And why we wait for the fulfillment of this good news for us in our lives, why we wait to see him face to face, we get to wait with him. We get to wait with him. The Holy Spirit that he gives us, this ever-present spirit with us, he empowers us to wait for him and to not grow weary. But Jesus says, I, I'm with you to the very end of this age, and then the age to come, we will all be with God face to face. He gives us this Holy Spirit to be with us as we wait and empowers us the ability to actually wait. Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not it's kind of interesting that God kind of, re it seems like the reverse order here, this promise, right? Don't you think they should, they should start with, they should walk and not be faint, and then they should run 
and not be weary, and then they should mount up on eagles' wings. Like, you think it'd be the other way around, but God brings in the, the, the best first. Like, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you this ability to wait in this season, in this exile. This is actually the, re- the repeated message of the Psalms. It takes strength and courage to wait for the Lord. The Lord being our salvation. The, the Lord being the good news. It's a wait for him. But he's the one that will strengthen us to wait. And we also remember that what he has done in the past. That he has brought them out of exile. And he will bring us out of exile as well. And why we wait. Why we wait as he empowers us to wait. We are to take up our calling. Like Isaiah which is what? To prepare the way. To prepare the way. Be a a voice crying out in the wilderness to a people in exile, tenderly speaking to them. Man, we just learned that this uh, morning in Sunday school, right? How do you be a life disciple, right? Tender. Comfort. You bring comfort to people in this broken world, telling them the good news. Behold your God. That this God is all-powerful, and he's going to free you from this world of sin. And this God is not just all-powerful, he loves you and knows you intimately. He cares. When Horatio Spofford received that telegram from his wife, saved alone, about the death of his four daughters, he took the next boat to join her in England. As he passed the spot where their ship sank and his daughters drowned, he wrote these lyrics in his grief. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. Thy sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. The tune to that song is actually the tune to the boat that actually sank. He named it after that boat. Friends, in his unimaginable grief, Spofford waited for the Lord. Because what else could he do? What else can you and I do? If God is the good news, what else? could he solve the problem that his daughters drowned, his son died in a fire? He can plead to God. He cries out and tells, I wait for you. I wait so when all this suffering and grief is over and which you promise that you will return and will be face to face. He waited because he knew God is the good news. God is the way. And God is the destination. In the meantime, you and I wait. We wait in grief, we wait in sorrow, 
We wait in, the, in this world filled of sin and pain. And we speak with comfort. We speak tenderly to each other and to the world. Understanding the grief that we're all in. That the grief that Spofford was in. And we prepare the way. We prepare all people for the good news. For the good tidings that Isaiah brings and that you and I bring. That God is the good news. Behold your God. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, loving Son and every present spirit, I thank you for this reminder that you and you alone are the good news of who you are, your power and your love and your justice, that you're a God that wants, us to, be, wants to be known and reveals himself, that seeks us out, that knows our pain and suffering, that empowers us in this waiting, in this formation of this character that you're building us into. Lord, help us continue to join in our calling that you give us to prepare the way to speak tenderly and to comfort people and to be present with people in their grief and in their sorrow and in this world and help them to behold you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. This week, help us to behold you each and every day. In every moment. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.